But I want to start with this. <clears throat> and I started to ask the two volunteers to come up here, but I don't think I'm going to put anybody on the spot. Um, dearly beloved, we are assembled here in the presence of God to join this man and this woman. Aren't you glad I didn't ask you to come up? In holy marriage, which is instituted by God, regulated by his commandments, blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor among all men. Let us therefore reverently remember that God has established and sanctified marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Our Savior has declared that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. By his apostles, he has instructed those who enter this relationship to cherish mutual esteem and love to bear with each other's infirmities and weaknesses, to comfort each other in sickness, trouble, and sorrow, in honesty and industry to provide for each other and for their household and temporal things, to pray for and encourage each other in the things which pertain to God, and to live together as the heirs of the grace of life. Does anybody want to get married? I got the notes right here. Um, I didn't pick up the wrong set of notes. Uh, I didn't think I was doing a wedding this morning, but, but those are probably familiar to many of you, kind of a, a standing opening to a wedding ceremony. Uh, and I read those because we are about to start, uh, for, for the next four weeks, we're going to do a series, a little mini-series on marriage, because we're in a section in the book of Ephesians that we've been working through uh, that is all about marriage. So we're going to talk about marriage today for, for three or four weeks. We're going to talk about what is it? What is marriage? Uh, what's it for? How does it work? And I want to start today, what we're going to spend our time today doing is trying to define marriage. Trying to define marriage. What is marriage? Now, at one time, the definition of marriage would have been something that pretty much uh, everybody would have agreed upon. It would have been easy to find consensus on what marriage is. But if you've uh, been paying attention to the Supreme Court, what's going on there at all this week, um, you know that the definition of marriage is at the very heart of the discussion that they've been having. What is the definition of marriage? And who, if anybody, has the right to change that definition? Uh, can the definition of marriage be modified to include not only a man and a woman, but can it be modified so that it now includes two people of the same sex, of the same gender? That's the question before the court. Uh, one writer who is in favor of gay marriage wrote this, of course we're talking about changing the definition of marriage. The reason is that the definition in existing law is no longer in line with our values. Is that the definition exists is no longer in line with our values as a nation, and so we need to change that definition. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Because the gay marriage debate is not the only place where our church, where the, where the church and our culture is wrestling with uh, what marriage is supposed to be. Uh, Chris Rock once asked the question uh, Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Uh, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Like these are the only two options. And in light of that, many today see marriage as this outmoded cultural invention that was better suited for a different era. And so, you know, we don't really need marriage. We can just move in together. Why, why bother with a paperwork? Why bother with a ceremony? Do you really need that? Besides, you don't really know if it's going to work out for you 
anyway. If we never get married, we won't have to fool with the messiness of divorce, which we've seen plenty of, so let's just avoid that entirely. Uh, others view marriage as almost the, the, the crown jewel of all of our accomplishments. Uh, Pamela Paul wrote, marriage is the new faith. In our marriage-happy culture, marriage is positioned as the end goal for the attractive and successful. Eat right, look good, work hard, make money, meet your mate, get married. In other words, she's saying for many, it's just part of the package. It's just what we do. It's what we're aiming for. A good school, a good job, a good house, a good marriage. Our spouses are almost just accessories uh, in our lives. Others of us see marriage as the answer to all of our hopes and dreams. And this is kind of the fairy tale or bridal magazine uh, view of marriage. So what I want to do today is to try to, to delve into that. What exactly is marriage? How do we define it? I want to try to do that from the Bible because we believe that the Bible is actually the Word of God. And as we do this, my prayer is that we'll see the beauty of marriage in the way that the Bible defines it. Uh, one commentator this week was asked his thoughts on what's going on at the Supreme Court last week, and, and he said, wherever the law lands on this, the cultural imagination is such that the question, what is marriage, is not even seen as a relevant one. And then he went on and added that it's up to Christians to offer marriage back to a sexually broken culture as the gift from God that it actually is. That Christians need to, to show our culture what a gift from God, marriage, as God intends it, actually is. So, so hopefully we're going to do that today. Uh, as we try to define what marriage is, I hope to show what a gift from God it also is. So, um, let's read the Bible. Uh, look, look on your sheet. We've got passages from several parts of the Bible, and I think this will make sense to you while we're reading these as we go along. The first one is from Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Excuse me. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. <clears throat> Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And from Proverbs chapter 2, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Uh, from the book of Malachi chapter 2, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then from the book of Ephesians, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we do need you to come. And we do need you to help us understand the word. We won't understand it rightly without your help. Uh, And we do need you to help us not just to understand it, but to believe it uh, and to trust it. And then to to go out and to to put it into practice. And so we pray that you would help us to do this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to try to define marriage this morning. Um, first of all, let me say this, and this is, this is drawing from the, um, from the Mark passage. M- marriage is instituted by God and regulated by his commandments. Uh, remember our earlier quote, the definition in existing law is no longer in line with our values. In other words, what, what, this, what the writer of that quote is saying is that we get to define marriage and shape the institution of marriage based on what we think is best. That it's just about us, and we're the sole people who get to determine what marriage should look like. Now notice, uh, Jesus in this passage, is, in Mark, is dealing with the question of divorce and what's lawful divorce. And he refers back to the creation account and argues against divorce based on the fact that God made man and woman for each other so that the two might become one flesh. He made them for intimate union uh, with each other. And he says when man and woman are joined together by God, they shouldn't be separated. And so what Jesus is in a sense saying is that, look, God created marriage for a man and a woman God, as the creator of marriage, also regulates marriage. He defines what it should be like and how it should work. Marriage is not a human invention. It's a divine invention. Uh, And the inventor intended it for it to be between a man uh, and a woman. So it it doesn't, in some respects, matter what 85% of people think. It really doesn't matter that much what the Supreme Court decides in one aspect. Because marriage is what God decides it is. And it is to be according to him between a man and a woman. So marriage instituted and regulated and defined by God. We we don't get to define what it looks like. Secondly, uh, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And I know that's not a, we don't use that word a lot. Uh, Marriage is a commitment. You see that in verse 31. You actually see it in several of these places, but verse 31 of Ephesians. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, You see this idea of covenant in this phrase, hold fast to. 
or be united to. The King James used to say cleave unto his wife. It's language of commitment. Uh, it means to be stuck together, to be glued together, to be legally stuck to one another for better or for worse. So you, are, you are committed to one another and you're in it through thick and thin. Uh, it's the language that's used to describe marriage in the Proverbs passage we read, in the Malachi passage we read, which is why I read those, that, that marriage is a covenant relationship. To enter into marriage is not to enter into a consumer relationship. It's to enter into a covenant relationship. Now, you have a consumer relationship with grocery stores. I mean, you have with a lot of places. Let's use this as an example. You have a consumer relationship with Publix. And if you've been buying milk at Publix for $5 a gallon and Bilo decides to start selling milk for $2.50 a gallon, you are not bound and committed to keep buying milk from Publix, all right? You have a consumer relationship with Publix. And so you're going to go and you're going to get a better deal, make better use of your money at, at Bilo. Same product, better cost. Our, our problem with marriage is that we've started viewing it in very consumeristic, if that's a word, uh, but in very consumeristic terms. So it's about me. It's about my happiness. And if I can get a better product somewhere else, then it's okay for me to go and find a better product. If I think that product will make me better than the product that I have now, then I leave. I just, I just go find something better. I go find a better deal. We view marriage often as a consumer relationship. It's all about me. But God views it as a covenant. Uh, it's a binding, public, legal agreement. Uh, it's not something you do in the backyard with just the two of you. Like, hey, let's go stand in the backyard and recite marriage vows for each other. It's a binding agreement you do in public, in front of witnesses, so that hopefully they're going to hold you accountable to those vows uh, that you're making. The, the public promises, the vows that you make in the wedding ceremony is not primarily about how you feel at that moment. It's not primarily about how that other person makes you feel at that moment. It's a promise about what you will do. It's not a promise about what you feel. It's a promise about what you will do. It's a promise to be loving and to be faithful to that person, which is my next point, number three here. Marriage is a covenant in which we promise to be loving and be faithful. Uh, it's a man and woman standing before God and saying to each other, I love you more than anybody else. I feel more love for you than anybody else. But I know that because I'm a sinner, there are going to be days when I don't feel like loving you. There will be situations in which I don't feel like being faithful to you. But I'm promising to be loving and to be faithful in spite of the feelings that I have. I may feel like yelling at you and running out the back door and never coming back. And you're probably going to feel like that at some point if you're married. But you're, you're promising, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back in even if I do run out. I, I'm going to stay. I may feel like ignoring you and, and escaping into a world of my own amusements and entertainments and hobbies. But by the grace of God, I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to drop the remote. Uh, and I'm going to come back and give my attention and give myself to you. Here's the thing in this. We've been conditioned to think of love primarily as a feeling. And it is a feeling. That is part of it. But biblically, the main idea behind love is that love 
is an action. Um, but one writer said that, that the modern idea of love is it's like a ditch that you fall into. All right? And either you fall into love or you don't, but you can't really control it. It either happens or it doesn't. The biblical idea is love is an action that then gives, gives rise to a feeling. Uh, think about parents who have children and they love them for 18 years. They're in their home, and, and I guess they keep loving them after that. But there, there's, this, there's this concentrated love for them for 18 years that you're committed to be loving to them no matter how they make you feel. Right? No matter when they're not listening to you, no matter if you're getting anything out of them. And over time, as you continue to love them, that emotion gets stronger and stronger. That emotional attachment for these people that you are loving. Uh, you can think of people in the past who were in arranged marriages. And I know that's like scary as all get out to us now. But, but people used to arrange marriages and they'd have some of the best marriages ever and wind up being madly in love simply because... They honored those vows, and they chose to be loving to one another. Um, Tim Keller, and, and I need to say I'm pulling a lot of this today from some of his old sermons, and especially his book on marriage, which if you're getting married, you need to go read that book. And if, if you're married, you need to read that book. But he tells the story of a, of a couple uh, early in his ministry. He was a pastor in, in a church in Virginia, and there was this couple that he really didn't like very much. But he was their pastor, and he needed to spend time with them. And so he invested in their, in their lives. He didn't have anything in common with them, but he chose to love them. One day on his day off, he turned to his wife, Kathy, and he said, Hey, let's have some, that couple over for dinner. And he said, she said, "What? Are you crazy? You can't stand them. Why do you want to have them over to our house on your day off? And he realized, he thought about it for a minute, and he realized that as he had committed himself to love them, he had actually grown, that feeling had actually grown within him. Like the action had produced the feeling, the emotional feeling of love for them. And so the, the, the takeaway from that is, go find somebody you don't like and marry them. <laughs> That's not right. Um, but, it, but, it, but look, look at, some point in your, at some point in your marriage, you're not going to feel like loving your spouse. At some point when you're dating, it's going to dawn on you, oh, wait, they're not perfect. Uh, they're, they're kind of messed up like me. And you've got to ask yourself at that moment, can I commit myself to love this person? Can I commit myself to love as an actionist person? Uh, number four, marriage is a lifelong, no matter what, commitment. Uh, it's not a commitment to be married as long as a person is healthy and beautiful. It's not a commitment to stay married as long as they make you happy and you don't have any difficulties with them. It's a commitment before God to stay married until death. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, the Bible does give a reason for divorce, uh, adultery and desertion. The Bible allows divorce in those situations. But those are exceptions and not the rule of the scriptures. B.B. Uh, Warfield was a, a, a theological uh, professor, uh, and he got married, and his wife had a nervous breakdown on their honeymoon, and she never got, never got better. All right, had, had a nervous breakdown on the honeymoon and never got married. Now, what would you do if you're in his shoes? All right, I, I think many of us would be tempted to say, well, I can't help her anymore. Maybe I can quietly divorce her and let somebody else deal with this, but it's not what I signed up for. 
Warfield decided to honor his vows and to love this woman whom he had married. Uh, he took care of her for 40 years. The last 10 years of, of her life, she was an invalid. He only left town once during that whole time, and he never left her side for more than two hours at a time. He was bound by these vows that he had made to his wife, and he kept them. And understanding the way in which Jesus had loved him enabled him to love his wife, even though I'm sure it was incredibly difficult. Number five, uh, marriage is a commitment to make this person the most important thing in your life other than God. Marriage is a commitment to make this other person the most important thing in your life other than God. Um, God tells husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church, not to love your job as Christ loved the church, not to love golf as Christ loved the church, but to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Your relationship with your spouse is going to be or is the most important thing in your life. It's more important than your parents and your relationship with them, which is why the Bible tells you you have to actually leave them. Uh, when you get married, you're, you're a new family. Uh, and, and, and everything's on the table. You've got to leave behind old family patterns and create new ones. Uh, you, you can't say, well, my mom always cooked or my dad always cooked. You've got to hash all those things out as a new family unit. Who cooks, who takes out the trash, who, whatever, walks a dog. It, it's all up for grabs, and you don't just bring in whatever your family did. You have to leave and then figure that out within this new family unit. Uh, your spouse is more important than your job. If your job is driving your spouse crazy and killing the marriage, you need to quit. Your spouse has to come before your job. Uh, your spouse is more important than your other friends. Uh, the, the person you marry has got to be your best friend. Not your mama, uh, not your daddy, not the guys you play golf with or, or whatever. Your spouse has to be your best friend. What is marriage? It's a covenant that involves a lifelong commitment to be loving and to be faithful and to make this other person the most important person other than God in your life. Now, why, why do I need that covenant? Why do I need to make those vows? Why do I need that piece of paper? Why do I need that public Ceremony. I, mean, I want to tell you three things here. Uh, why do we need, why, do, why do man and woman need to make these publicly binding promises? Uh, Genesis 2.18, you're in the middle of the creation story there, and God has been going along creating things and saying, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then he creates Adam, and he says for the first time something's not good. He says it's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a helper suitable for him. A perfect world, think about it, there's a perfect world, there's no sin, and God says it is not good. There's something that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The, the Hebrew literally says, like opposite him, which is very, a very interesting phrase when you think about that. So God creates Eve, and he brings her to Adam, and he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that, that's basically Hebrew poetry, and that's the best we can kind of translate it. But basically, Adam sees Eve, he says, that's what I'm talking about. All right, that's what's been missing in this garden. 
Um, and, and, and so bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're, you're me, but you're not me. You're, you're what completes me. God brought Eve to Adam because it was not good for Adam to be alone. He was incomplete without her. And so, and we'll, we'll talk about more about this next week, but one of the, the purposes of marriage is companionship. Uh, it, it's deep friendship. Uh, it's a one flesh sort of companionship. The goal of marriage is for you to become one flesh with another person uh, in every way, every conceivable way, sexually, emotionally, socially, spiritually, money you know, everything, everything, everything becomes one with you. Uh, the, the goal is to have them know you like nobody else knows you. For you to know them like nobody else knows them. For you to be completely vulnerable with them. For them to be able to see your warts and your shortcomings and your failings. And to still be able to say, I love you and I accept you. For you to be one with them and to be naked and unashamed in every way possible. And see, if that's going to happen, it, it, it's, it's only within the boundaries of a lifelong covenant, commitment, that it's actually safe to be that vulnerable with another person. Where they've said to you publicly, I ain't going to leave. I may find out some stuff I wasn't planning on, but I'm not leaving. I'm sticking with you. And in that environment, you can be, you, you can show people who you really are. And it may be the only place where you can truly show another person who you really are. But the thing about it like this, when we confess our sins, all right, when we confess our sins with God, what is it that enables us to be completely open and honest with God about our sin? We know, we see at the cross of Christ God's commitment to us. He's like, I see you. I see what you're like. I see who you are, and yet I've, I've paid the price. And so we don't have to hide that. We can bring that to him. It enables us to be open with him. To have our spouse accept us for who we are enables us to be open and honest and to develop this deep relationship and relationship and, and deep friendship with them. Uh, second thing here, a covenant keeps you going um, during those times when you're tempted to bail and actually allows time for deep feelings of love to develop. It actually allows time for deep feelings of love to develop. When you first fall in love with somebody, you think you love them for who they are. And I'm going to make all the recently married people nervous here. But, but, but you think you love them for, for, for who they are, but you can't because you don't really know them yet. You don't really, it's going to be 20, maybe 30 years before you really, really know and see who they are. What you're in love with at the very beginning is your idea of that person. Is your idea of that person. In, in uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Eowyn falls in love with Aragorn, Aragorn. And he doesn't love her. And he tell, this is what he tells her brother. All right, this is what he says to her brother. She loves you, her brother, more truly than me. For you she loves and knows. But in me, she loves only a shadow and a thought, a hope of glory and great deeds and lands far. In other words, he's saying, she's in love with who she thinks I am, but she doesn't really know me yet. But look, not only do you not, 
you, not only do you not really know the person you're marrying, you're both going to change. You're both going to change. Uh, one, one writer put it this way. When I married my wife, I hardly had a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married. And each of the five has been me. In other words, you, you, you change over time and your spouse changes over time. Not only, I don't keep upping the ante here, not only are you both going to change, you're going to get to see, you're going to have the privilege of seeing that other person's flaws more up close and personal than you see the flaws of any other person in the world. All right? You get to know them in a way that nobody else knows them, and you get to see everything about them. Uh, you don't know them like you think you know them. They're going to change, you're going to change, and you're going to see each other's junk. And so you have to decide to love them as an action. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You will fall out of like with your spouse at times. And it's only as you stick to your vows. It's only as you stick to the covenant that you made with them that you give uh, that you that you give the time for those deep feelings of love to develop. Susan and I have been married almost 20 years. Uh, this month will be our, our 20th anniversary. I'm not who she thought I was. Uh, I'm not as funny as she thought I was. Maybe she didn't think I was that funny to start with. I, I, I'm not as handsome as she thought I was. I, I, I'm not as smart. Not, certainly not as holy. Um, I'm, I'm more of a sinner than she thought I was. But she keeps loving me. And I keep loving her. And that commitment is what allows those true feelings of love to develop. Um, look, when you see like a, a really old couple on a bench holding hands, you know they've been married for a long time, there's not as much electricity when they're holding hands as the first time they held hands, okay? But the love that they experience is so much deeper and so much more real and true than this gnat. It's so much more, so much more real than what what they experienced when they first met. They they've allowed real love to develop, and it has developed over the course of their marriage. Now, go away. Now, last thing, um, the covenant keeps you together so that you can help each other become the people that God intends for you to be. The covenant keeps you together so that you can help each other become the God, people God intends for you to be. One of the purposes, and we're going to talk about this next week. Our marriage is to actually make you holy, to sanctify you, to, to make you the person that God wants you to be. And when you get this, you can look at a person and see their flaws, but you can also be excited about, you know what, God's put me in this person's life and God's put them in my life so that we can help one another become who God wants us to be. Um, let me just read a, a quote from Keller's book on this. We're able to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at you and your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. I see your flaws, imperfections, weaknesses, dependencies, 
But underneath them all, I see growing the person God wants you to be. A covenant commits you to another person so that you can help them become the person God wants them to be and so that they're committed to you and can help you become the person God wants you to be. Marriage is a covenant, and we need that covenant if we're going to be the people, if we're going to be everything God intends for us to be. Now, actually, I do have one more thing to say. Sorry, I lied. Um, real quickly, a, a couple of applications, because I know we have a lot of, a lot of single people, and sometimes marriage, like, like, why are you talking about marriage? Two things real quickly. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Uh, sex is the covenant renewal ceremony of that relationship. It's a way of cementing that covenant with another person. It's how you say to another person, I belong to you and to nobody else. And that's why it's only meant for marriage. Uh, when you say, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to... I don't want to get married to you. You're saying, I want to be naked with you physically, but I don't want to be naked with you in any other way. I want to, I want to use you. I don't want to, to love you. Secondly, be wise in your relationships with members of the opposite sex. Um, and notice I say be wise. Most of the time, if you're best friends with somebody who's uh, a member of the opposite sex, at least one of you has some sort of romantic interest. And so you have to be wise and careful with those relationships. Uh, that said, who better to date than your friend? Who better to date than your friend? Uh, look, when, when you get married, the goal is for you to become one with that person in every way. In every way. Look for a person like that. Look for a person you want to spend the rest of your life with Quit looking for somebody sexy and then trying to make a friend out of them. Okay? Like, we, we go into rooms and we eliminate, like, all these people who could be potentially great spouses because they don't measure up to these crazy expectations we have of what people are supposed to look like. So, so who are your friends? Whose company do you enjoy? Who can you envision actually spending the rest of your life talking to and getting to know? Well, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant that involves a lifelong commitment to be loving, to be faithful, to make another person the most important person in your life. It's hard work. Uh, it's not all fun. But if you'll submit to the design of the creator and use marriage, experience marriage like he means for it to be experienced, you'll experience joy in a relationship that you never thought was possible in a relationship. Uh, you'll experience joy that you never knew was possible because you'll begin to experience the, the joy of being completely known and completely accepted and loved at the same time, which is why marriage is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. It gives us a taste of what the gospel is all about. Let me, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, I do pray that you would help us to see the ways in which cultural, uh, the culture in bad ways affects how we think about marriage. And I pray that uh, our view of marriage would be shaped by your word. Uh, and that those of us who are married would remember these vows that we have made. And that we would come back to them again and again and be constrained by them. Uh, and Father, when we fail in these things that we would confess and be quick to confess uh, and to renew our vows and to renew our marriages. Uh, God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, we kind of left out something I feel like a little bit, um, which is one reason I love that we come uh, to the Lord's Supper every week. Because that was a sermon, and we have these from time to time, that, that are sort of heavy on do and be, and this is how you should live. But where in the world do I find the power to actually do that way, to live that way? How can I ever keep those vows? Uh, we find it as we look to someone who is utterly and completely committed to us. Someone who promised to forgive us if we would simply look to him and believe, if we would simply look to him in faith. Uh, someone who was so committed to our good that he was willing to die for us even when he saw everything that was wrong with us. We find it in, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can know, you should know that he died for you when you hated him. He died for you uh, when you ignored him and didn't have time for him. He died for you when you refused to treasure him. He died for you when you were a sinner. And he loves you, and he desires to make you into someone beautiful. He said, I see every single thing about you, and I'm still going to the cross to rescue you because you are mine, and my desire is to make you into what you always were intended to be. And so the Lord's Supper points us to Jesus. Uh, we find the ability to love our spouses as we see the way in which Jesus loved us. But the Supper also reminds us, you know what, we're going to fail at loving our spouses. We're going to mess up those vows, sometimes badly. And yet Jesus still loves us in the midst of that. He's died for those sins. He's died for those failures. And so we, we run to him over and over and over again, confessing our sin, confessing, confessing our failure, and receiving his love and forgiveness from you. And so I, I, I just want to invite you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to come to Jesus and to remember his love for you in the midst of your failings, in the midst of your sin, and to see what he has done for you and to let that transform you and then go and prayerfully try to put something of that into practice in the way that you love uh, your spouse.